John chapter one, beginning in verse 14. The apostle writes, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness, we have all received and grace for grace for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten son who is in the bosom of the father. He has declared him. In the opening chapter of John, we see five arguments developed why Jesus Christ is divine, incomparable, unique. Jesus is eternal. We learned in verses one and two. Christ is creator in verses three through five and also in verse nine. Jesus is the giver of life and the sustainer of life, both physical and spiritual. In verses 10 through 13, Jesus manifests God's glory. That's what we discovered in verses 14 through 17. And now when we come to verse 18, we discover that Jesus declares That which is invisible and makes him visible. Jesus takes that which is inexplicable, unexplainable and explains God. Jesus is unique in his preexistence, in his incarnation, in his twofold nature. He is the second person of the Trinity forever and eternal God who acquires a second nature, a human nature in time and space. John is pleading the case for Christ. The apostle presents himself as one of the witnesses in verses one through five. He then introduces a special witness, the witness of John the Baptist in verses six through eight. John offers as proof of the identity of Jesus, the incarnation. Jesus becomes flesh in verse 14. Jesus dwells visibly among human beings in time and space, both able to touch and experience what it means to be fully human. John the Baptist bears witness to the extraordinary and superior ministry of Jesus in verse 15. John then offers as proof. The fact that humanity has experienced, that is, received the fullness of Jesus Christ manifest in God's grace and God's truth. And he equates God's grace and God's truth with the very physical representation of Jesus. John then presents as proof that only God's son. Has seen God. Only God's son can explain God in verse 18. As we study the gospel of John, I think it's important for you to be able to ask this question. Why is it that John is so interested in arguments and proof? What is it that he's trying to accomplish? I think most of us understand about skepticism. Most of us understand about doubt. Most of us understand the need to have proof. I I suspect that at some time in your life, you either ask God or you ask someone, prove to me that you're there. You probably had a loved one. Prove to me that the Bible is true. Prove to me that Jesus is the Lord. I need to know. John knew that most people were ignorant of the basics of Christianity. Yet John knew people still wanted to know the truth. They wanted to know whether or not there is hope in this life. And they want to know if there's hope in the next life. John also knew that many people are more aware of their doubt than they are of their guilt. For every person who's asked me to prove something about God. 
For every 100 people who's asked me to prove something about God, I've only had one person who has said, prove to me I'm a sinner. It's easy to prove a person's a sinner. Have you ever lied? Have you ever cheated? Have you ever stolen? Have you ever misrepresented God? The truth is, John knew that people want proof. It's interesting to me that John will spend the rest of his gospel offering reason and trial and test and demonstration and corroboration and confirmation and substantiation and verification concerning the identity of Jesus. So what are you willing to accept? What are you willing to accept as proof of Jesus? His perfect life? Prophecy concerning his life? Testimony concerning his life? Verification of his resurrection? Until you are willing to admit your sin, until you're willing to admit your need for a savior, until you're willing to turn from your sin and believe Jesus and receive Jesus and be changed supernaturally by Jesus. All of the proof and all of the evidence and all of the arguments will seem hollow. But you know, what's interesting to me. John will still offer the evidence. He'll still offer the proof. He'll still offer the testimony. He'll still offer the invitation. Receive Jesus. Believe in Jesus. Experience the transforming power of grace. Look what it says in verse 14. Christ's incarnation. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the father full of grace and truth. That expression, the phrase and the word, we know that's the logos became flesh or was made flesh. Became is a very interesting Greek word. It's the word. Egeneto. It's translated became in the RSV, in the New American Standard, in the NIV. In other words, the word, when it says became flesh, it doesn't simply say that Jesus was born like in Matthew or Jesus was born like in Luke. The eternal logos was made, but rather became flesh in his incarnation. The reason why the writer puts it this way is to stress the pre-existence of Jesus. Jesus has always existed. The second person of the Trinity has always existed in friendship and fellowship to the Father. The expression dwelt is the Greek verb skino. It comes from the root word skene. It means a tent. The phrase literally means that Jesus or the word became flesh and dwelt. The word is tabernacled among us. The idea is pitching a tent and the force of the phrase is brought out in the NIV where it says, and he lived for a while among us. The point is that God wasn't just passing through. It wasn't God on an adventure saying, hey, I want to know what it's like to be a human. I want to know what it's like to cry tears. I want to know what it's like to taste chocolate. I want to know what it's like to be real. God is always and forever will be real. But he comes and he stays with us. I think you know something. That human beings are hopelessly religious. Human beings crave a deity who is visible and tangible and accessible. And this craving in the past has even manifested itself in our ever-present preoccupation with some visible, tangible representation of God. In ancient times, men would carve statues. They would set up monuments. They would worship trees or stones or objects or animals or bizarre symbols. People want something physical, accessible, 
Every person who is a mother or a father who has had a child wake up in the middle of the night crying because of a storm or a bad dream and the child has either run into your room or you run into their room and they're crying and they're shaking and the parent says, have you prayed? Have you, are you trusting Jesus? And they go, I want someone with skin. In the darkness, you don't want an invisible person. You want a visible person. We find that in the Bible. Job cried out to God. He sought God, even though he couldn't see God. In Job chapter 23, the oldest book in the Old Testament, Job writes in Job chapter 23, verse 8. Look, I go forward, but he is not there. And backward, but I cannot perceive him. When he works on the left hand, I cannot behold him. When he turns to the right hand, I cannot see him. Same thing you used to say. Where's God? I look to the left, I don't see him. I look to the right, I don't see him. I look up, I look down, I don't see him. Some of your friends. Where's God? I don't see him. Where are you? In a few months, I know some of you are thinking in a few years, we'll come to John chapter 14. In John chapter 14, verses 8 and 9, Philip says to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? The answer Jesus gives to Philip is still true. When we see the attitude of Jesus and the acts of Jesus, when we understand what he said and what we did, it is to introduce to us the thoughts and the ideas, the attitudes and the actions of the Father. Remember, prior to the birth of Jesus, God spent all of human history preparing the world for the arrival of Christ. In Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, Paul puts it this way. But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. He comes for real. Martin Luther used to sing. All praise to thee, eternal Lord, clothed in a garb of flesh and blood, choosing a manger for a throne, while worlds on worlds are thine alone. When the Bible says the word became flesh, you should read human. Human in every way. Human tears, human organs, human perspiration, human, human in every way. Paul gives a description of the flesh in 1 Corinthians fifteen forty two. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. It's raised in incorruption. It's sown in dishonor, raised in glory, sown in weakness. It is raised in power, sown a natural, raised spiritual. He talks about the fact that there's a difference between the natural body and the spiritual body, dishonorable, corruptible, human. Jesus is fully God. He is fully man. And John writes, and we beheld his glory. We saw it. We beheld his glory. And the word beheld is an interesting word. The root of that word in the original language is the same word that you and I use when we use the word theater. A theater is a place of spectacle and observation. It's not a place that you casually look at. It's like when you go to the theater and you watch a movie and you are in your seat and you're glued to the object that you're looking at. We beheld his glory, not just at a glance, not superficially. We beheld his glory and the word glory is important. The word itself in the original language is doxa. We get the word doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. 
Praise Him, all creatures here below. You know the doxology. Praise Him up above, ye heavenly host. It's called the doxology. We sing that and we say that. In ancient literature, in classic Greek, prior to the church, it was a word that meant honor. It meant reputation. It meant opinion. In the New Testament, it it would mean so much more. It came to mean recognition and honor and brightness and splendor. In the Old Testament, the word glory was from a Hebrew word, kabod. It meant weight, substance. And in the Old Testament, the kabod or the glory of God was the sum and the substance. It was the aggregate of all of the attributes of God. If you think of God's eternality, if you think of his omnipotence, his omnipresence, all of the omnis of God, all of the weight, all of the eternality, all of the divine attributes of God. And you take them and you put them in one category. It would be the category of glory. In our culture and society, weight, I guess, could be associated with bling. Have you ever seen like a Mr. T starter set where a guy's got all kinds of gold chains around him? He's got diamonds. He's got bling on his lips. He's got bling in his teeth. He's got bling on his hands. And someone will go, ooh, that guy's got $100,000 right there on his hands and around his chest. It was the weight. That's the same thing. That's what glory is. It's the weight. And Jesus Christ was the Shekinah. Some of you mispronounce the word Shekinah. So I'll mispronounce it just so you'll remember what I'm saying. The Shekinah glory of God was that place where God dwelt. It was the symbolic place of the dwelling of God. In the Old Testament, it referred to the cloud that God used to guide the children of Israel out of Egypt. It was that cloud that rested over the tabernacle and above the mercy seat, the Ark of the Covenant in the holy place. That cloud represented the presence of God. And so when John says, and we beheld his glory, it is a reference to the Shekinah glory of God. It is a it is a a reference to the very presence of God. All that Jesus was in his person, in his being, in his character, in his behavior, in his ministry, God. And he's the perfect embodiment of grace and truth, of love and joy and peace and long suffering and gentleness and goodness and faith and meekness and self-control. It is when Paul is in prison and he's meditating on these important things that he writes in Colossians chapter two, verse nine, for in him that is in Jesus, for in Jesus dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. The sum and the substance of every attribute, of every weight of God, the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Grace and truth are the two qualities of Jesus's life by which he manifested the glory of God and redeemed the world. So these are the two words that John uses to describe that quality of the manifestation. It is in grace and truth that you see the weight of the sum and the substance of all of the attributes of God and the redemption of the world. Listen carefully. Grace is what Jesus did. Truth is what Jesus did. Sad. And so now, again, John is inviting you not simply to believe what Jesus said, but to believe what Jesus did. And so. Both grace and truth are the essential experience in man's redemption. You have to experience God's grace. You must embrace God's truth. One way of thinking about this is that grace doesn't operate apart from truth. 
Grace always operates in the context of truth. Jesus manifests grace truthfully and proclaims truth graciously. Let me put it to you this way. Is Jesus dogmatic when he tells the truth? Yeah, he's telling the truth. Jesus said, I'm the way and the truth and the life. Jesus says, this is the truth. I've come from my father. Jesus tells over and over again in the New Testament, this is my mission. This is what I'm doing here. I'm here for your sake. I'm here to redeem you. I'm here to reconcile you to the father. I'm I'm here so that you can have friendship and relationship with God. By the way, did Jesus's words offend people? What do you think the answer is? What was offensive about what he said? Here's, he says that he's God. He says that he's come from God. He says that he's there as the redeemer of God. Remember the religious leaders of his own day said, you being a man, make yourself out to be God. And the whole gospel of John will surround some of those signs, including Opening blind eyes and deaf ears and raising the dead. And you'll remember after John 11, when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, there's a footnote that's given in the in the in the gospel of John. From that point forward, the religious leaders spend every day, day after day, trying to kill him. And you know what they really wanted Jesus to do? They wanted him to lie. We're offended by what you're saying. Lie to us. And do you remember Jesus' response? If I lie, then I become exactly like you. I have to tell you the truth. But there's a lesson for us. We can hold correct opinions. We can hold correct doctrine. We can hold correct opinions and correct doctrine with an incorrect heart. And we have to have both grace and truth. We must embrace grace and truth. And we must hold them in gentle balance, in a balance that betrays neither and affirms both. This is why the New Testament reiterates and says, speak the truth in love. If you find yourself in a circumstance where you are unable to speak the truth in love, do neither. Walk away until you're able to do both. And Jesus is the very communication of grace and truth. Imagine you walk into a room. And in that room are jewels. Precious stones, the most remarkable jewels in all of the world. Imagine that each stone and each jewel is worth a king's ransom, valued many times the normal amount of money that a person could make in a lifetime. Think about an exquisite place with exquisite jewels, with the most valuable, the most notable things in all of the earth. But there's one jewel in that room that is more valuable than the sum and the substance of all of the rest of the jewels combined. You pick it up and you're overwhelmed by its sheer beauty, its unmistakable quality and rarity, and you understand that it is the most valuable, the most precious, the single most exceeding rare object in the whole wide world. That's the place and the position that's given to grace in the New Testament and in John's gospel. We pick up the word grace like a diamond and we examine it for its cut and its clarity and its and, and, and its carrot or weight. I recently heard that the largest diamond known to exist was recently cut. They estimated its initial value. Seventeen million dollars. Grace is that quality within a thing that makes it beautiful or or joyful. In the Greek language, the word is charis, C-H-A-R-I-S. Even in the ancient world, even before Jesus came to the earth and died 
on the cross for our sins. This was a word that ancient people would use to describe the fragrance of a flower, the deep aqua blue of the ocean, the pale blue of the sky. For those of you who grew up in my era, the 60s and the 70s, remember, we would always sing about beautiful things. The beauty of the flower, the beauty of the tree, the birds and the bees and the flowers and the trees and the moon up above. And how's the rest of it go? And a thing called love. That's part of it. Grace is the quality of that thing that makes something beautiful or joyful. Grace is what gives chocolate its exquisite flavor when it touches your lips. Grace is that really good feeling that you experience when the Rockies are in the World Series. Grace is the glance. The beauty that you see in the man or the woman next to you. And you see in the pale reflection of that beauty, the exquisite beauty of Eve. Have you ever seen a beautiful woman? And you understood, you began to understand the beauty and the majesty, the intrinsic beauty of the first woman who was ever created. And that every beautiful woman who exists simply is a pale reflection of that initial beauty of Eve. You girls, when you see Brad Pitt and you go, oh God, And you realize that that handsome man is just a simple, pale reflection of the perfection of handsomeness and what it meant to be handsome in the beginning. That's what this word is. Grace is anything that is beautiful and lovely, whether in thought or word, a person, a gem, an exquisite work of art, an animal, a flower, a tree. Grace was both beauty and gift. It was a gift given in love and friendship. It was freely done, expecting nothing in return for the ancient people. They understood that grace was the thing that made your parents love you and made your grandparents accept you. It was the beauty of the relationship that God established for the people that God has placed in your life. And when Christians realized what God had done for them in Christ, they had to expand the meaning of the word grace to include the favor of God given not to friends, but to enemies. In other words, it had to come to mean more than the simple affection and love and beauty that gracious people extend to one another. But now they had to invent a category that never existed. How God could love and provide mercy for and extend mercy to people who hated him. You see, there's a distinct difference between God's grace and man's grace. Human beings do favors and perform acts of grace toward one another. But God does for his enemies what human beings will only do for their loved ones, for their friends, for their people group, for their tribe. God's love and God's mercy and God's forgiveness is given to the most wicked and the most hateful and the most corrupt and the least deserving. It would be if you could find someone who was committed to hating you with all of their might and all of their resources and all of their circumstances, they lived to destroy you. And you sacrificed everything to make life meaningful for them. You have a tiny taste of God's grace. Paul writes about it in Romans chapter 5, verse 8. Where he says, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us much more than having now been justified by his blood. We shall be saved from wrath through him. For if we if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. 
He's trying to put into words God's grace. In John's witness, in verse 15, look what it says. It says, John bore witness of him, cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. Now, John the Baptist was six months older than Jesus. There seems to be good evidence that Elizabeth and Mary were related to one another. And because John the Baptist was six months older than Jesus... In the culture and society in which he lived, preference goes to the elder rather than to the younger. But John said, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me is preferred before me. Jesus comes after John because he's born after John and his ministry begins after John. But he's preferred before John. In other words, John the Baptist's testimony is. Jesus has greater rank, greater dignity than John the Baptist. And the the expression for he was before me is literally hoti, protos, mao, in. Literally, it says for he that is literally first to me, first of me. It's his way of saying it refers to honor, rank, relationship, both in time and importance. Jesus Christ was first in time. He existed before John. He existed in the beginning and throughout eternity. John is in effect saying he was before me. He, Jesus, has always existed. Jesus is the reason that John exists. The very cause or the source of John's existence is found in the person of Jesus Christ. John declares that Jesus is first in importance, first in superiority, first in being, first in person. And so this is why the New Testament says Jesus is the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And the testimony in verse 16, and of his fullness, we have all received and grace for grace. I looked at this verse, verse 16, for at least two hours. And I thought, how can I explain to you what this means? Imagine we're in a plane. And we're flying over the ocean and I look down and I say, there's the ocean. And you go, that's not the ocean. That's just part of the ocean. There's an Atlantic Ocean and there's a Pacific Ocean and there's a Mediterranean Ocean. There's an ocean in the north. There's an ocean in the south. There's an ocean in the east. There's an ocean in the west. Can you see all of the ocean at any given time? No. Let's say you went out into outer space. Could you see all of the oceans all over the earth? No matter where you were observing it from. How do you explain that which cannot be explained? And of his fullness we have all received in grace for grace. Here's what it means minimum. Minimum it means he piles grace upon grace. He gives you that which is inexhaustible, infinite and immeasurable. And then he gives you more. I'm reminded of a, of, of, a, of a story that I read many years ago of this woman who lived in the middle of England and she was very poor. And she'd never seen the ocean. And someone took her on a picnic to the beach and they drove from the interior of the land and she saw the ocean for the first time and she sees the waves come crashing in and as far as she can see from every direction she sees this vast expanse of water and she begins to cry and the person says to her why are you crying and she said I've never seen anything That there was so much of it that there was enough for everyone. But it becomes a perfect description of grace. Grace that cannot be exhausted. 
Grace that is infinite. Grace that is immeasurable. He gives grace for every need. And then he gives more. This is the kind of grace given to face every trial, every pain, every sorrow, every sin. It's the kind of grace that you need when you ask yourself, is my marriage going to survive? My husband has left me. My wife has left me. I've lost my job. I have an incurable disease. I have a circumstance that I don't know how to face and I don't know what to do with it. And God shows up and he gives you grace. And then he gives you more grace. It's the same kind of grace that that Paul talks about when he was experiencing the affliction in his flesh and he cried out to God, not once, not twice, not three times. He begged God to take this pain away from him. And you'll remember Christ's response in Second Corinthians, chapter 12, verse nine. My grace is sufficient. In weakness My strength is made perfect. And you might think you need something more than grace. Well, I need a good job and I need a good relationship and I I need to be a good person and I need to do good things. And it's the emptiness and the loneliness and the darkness and the wickedness and the corruption and you wonder Is there enough grace to cover my dark heart? Is there enough grace to cover my wickedness? Is there enough grace to cover my pain? Is there enough grace to cover my sorrow? Grace for the prisoner. Grace for those who weep. Grace for those who mourn. Minimum, it means that. And then in verse 17, it says, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Johnny Erickson Tata was fond of saying. God didn't just give us grace. He gave us Jesus. The Lord of grace. Some of you may know her story at. The tender age of 17 or 18, I don't remember, but she was very young. She dove into a very shallow pool in the ocean and she broke the vertebrae in her neck, creating complete paralysis from the neck down so that she couldn't use her arms and she couldn't use her legs. And she would be forever dependent on the generosity of others. And she began to live grace. The law was given in part to point us to God. The law was given in part to tell us about God's character and God's expectation. And so here, John is going to contrast two gifts. The law that came from Moses and grace which came through Jesus Christ. He's in effect Going to ask and answer the question, how do we experience the fullness of God by being as good as we possibly can, by working to please God the best that we can, by keeping the rules and the commandments as best that we can? Does grace come by keeping the law? Not really. Grace is our need when we break the law. What comes with the knowledge of the law? The knowledge that you're a lawbreaker. You don't even have to have ten commandments. You only need the first one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And then you realize you only have to live for one hour on any given day. You only have to think one selfish thought. You only have to preoccupy yourself with yourself for one moment and you've broken the law. And the Bible says that if you've broken one law, you're guilty of breaking all of the laws. No man can keep the law to perfection. The law reveals that we're lawbreakers. Paul wrote in the New Testament, he said, I had no idea that I had a problem with covetousness. 
until I read the law that says don't covet. The moment that you want something that doesn't belong to you, you break the law. And if a man or a woman is to be acceptable to God, you have to cry out for mercy, for forgiveness. Because you've broken God's law, you stand condemned before God. Our best is not good enough and our worst rightly condemns us. We are accepted by God because we keep coming to God for mercy, for love, for forgiveness, for grace, for grace alone that comes from Christ alone. The fullness of God, the fullness of grace revealed in Jesus is both the result of the incarnation and the proof of the incarnation. God becomes flesh in the person of Jesus Christ to extend grace to you. What's the difference between law and grace? Let me give you a thumbnail sketch. The law reveals what's inside of a person, inside of a man. The law tells us what's inside of us. Grace reveals what's inside of God. What's in his heart. The law demands righteousness for the sinner. Grace brings righteousness to the sinner. The law tells us what men must do for God. Grace tells us what Christ has done for men. The law gives knowledge of sin. Grace brings forgiveness for sin. The law brought God out to men. Grace brings man to God. If I were to sum this up in a sentence, the sentence would look like this. The law demands. Grace gives. And look at verse 18. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten son who is in the bosom of the father, he has declared him. Read it again. No one has seen God at any time. You might be thinking, well, wait a minute. I thought Adam walked with God in the garden. I thought Enoch walked with God. I thought Noah spoke to God. I thought Abraham saw God. I thought Isaac listened to God. I thought Jacob wrestled with God. What does it mean? No one has seen God at any time. I think it means that no one has ever seen the fullness of deity. No one has ever seen the fullness of the majesty, of the glory, of the power, of the might. No one has seen the invisible God. No, and he cannot be seen. Not angels. Not humans. No one. But look what it says. The only begotten son who is in the bosom of the father. He has declared him. You know where the bosom is? You've heard the expression bosom buddies. Bosom is the place that's just right of your left armpit and left of your right armpit. And it lies right smack dab in the middle where your heart is. Do you remember when you were a kid growing up, maybe a mother, father, brother, or sister? Do you remember ever placing your head on the chest of someone and you press your ear close to their chest and you hear the the heart beating? You have to get into a place of relationship to be able to place your ear on someone's chest and listen to their heartbeat. This is the place that John describes for himself in relationship with Jesus. When John refers to himself as. As the as the the apostle or, or, or as the beloved, he's talking about this person who sat with Jesus and who placed his head on Jesus's chest and he heard the pounding of his heartbeat. The bosom of the father is his heart. This is the place of deepest, most intimate, personal fellowship 
It is John's way of saying that Jesus declares that which comes from the Father based on the deepest, closest, personal, intimate relationship possible. And the word declared him appears nowhere else in the New Testament. Only here. It's the Greek word exogamei. John uses it here and only here. But it is a word that Bible teachers use for a familiar part of Bible study. It's called exegesis. Exegesis is the idea of expounding that which is in plain sight, which can be seen, which which it is the Bible teacher's responsibility to uncover and make you aware that it's been there all along. Exegesis is sort of like hiding Easter eggs. Where you're the parents and you know where all the eggs are hidden. And it's your idea to give the clues to the children of where to find them. And John the Apostle is in effect telling us that Jesus expounds God. Jesus does that which could not be done. He makes known by expounding the things of God, revealing the heart of God, declaring God that Jesus is literally the exegesis of God. Through Jesus, we know God and we begin to understand what God is like. This is why the writer of Hebrews said God in times past spoke to the prophets, but he has in these last days spoken to us by his own dear son. So it's a state of deepest intimacy, of boundless love, of fullest fellowship, of deepest friendship, of mutual and eternal affection. This is John's way of saying Jesus came to exegete both God and God's heart. We can contemplate God. But we can never fully comprehend God. Jesus is the only begotten son. But we can just as rightly say that Jesus is the only begotten God. You see, Jesus is co-equal and co-existent with God. Some may say that they can't comprehend it. And we probably can't. We can only believe it. What does the expression only begotten mean? Jesus Christ proceeded by eternal generation from the father. His eternal beginning never began. For he always was. And he has always been. And he is always always will be Jesus Christ yesterday, today and forever. Major Ian Thomas put it this way. He had to come as he came in order to be what he was. He had to be what he was in order to do what he did. He had to do what he did so that he might have what he has. We have to have what he has. In order to be what he was. I like that. It's the summation of the entire thing. He had to come as he came, born of a virgin, in order to be what he was, a perfect man inhabited by God. He had to do what he was in order to do what he did. That is, to die on the cross for our sins and to rise from the dead. He had to do what he did so that we might have what he has. His life. Lost in Adam. But we have to do what he has in order to be what he was. Perfect. Inhabited by God. I love the way John Phillips sums up the section. Such is John's introductory statement. If he had written no more, he would have said all that needs to know. His prologue puts to rest all those philosophical speculations and heresies that in his day and ours find expression in attacking the person of Christ with reference either to his deity or his humanity. So John tells us Jesus is preexistent, verse 15. He is the fullness of God, verse 16. He is a gift, verse 17. He declares God, verse 18. <laughs> John reveals the fact of God as man in the incarnation and the further fact of God in man in the regeneration. 
This is the purpose of the incarnation and regeneration for Christ in history doesn't mean anything unless you experience Jesus Christ in your life. I read an interesting thing. Economists tell us that in the United States of America, there's 25,000 ways to make a living. But according to the Bible, there's only one way to make a life. Only one way. Only one way to have life and make a life. And that's a right relationship with Christ. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote, It is grace at the beginning and grace at the end. So that when you and I come to lie upon our deathbeds, the one thing that should comfort and help and strengthen us is the thing that has helped us in the beginning. Not what we have been. Not what we have done. But the grace of God in Jesus Christ, our Lord. The Christian life starts with grace. It continues with grace. It must end with grace. Grace. Wondrous grace. By the grace of God, I am what I am. Yet not I. But the grace of God. Which was with me. Have you experienced the grace of God? Remember, it's not just a religious thing that you experience. It's not just favor. It's not just mercy. It's not just forgiveness. It's not just love. It's all of that and more. It's Jesus. Real. Present. In your life. Do you know him? Let's pray. Heavenly Father. I pray for each and every person here. Lord, I'm frustrated that I can't explain that which cannot be explained. I can't describe that which cannot be described. Lord, I can only beg people to experience that which can be experienced. Love and forgiveness and grace and mercy. Lord, for that person who is in a deep, dark place of emptiness and loneliness, of wickedness, of hurt. Lord, I pray that your grace would be sufficient for today. And that there would be new grace for tomorrow. Lord, I pray that Jesus Christ himself would come into each and every heart by invitation and that each person would experience transformation. In Jesus' name.